You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. We've been walking through 1 Timothy. We're going to wrap up 1 Timothy today, but we're going to pick up 2 Timothy next Sunday. And as you know, one of the key issues in this particular book was false teaching. That there was this constant issue with with Timothy and, and what was creeping into his church. So Paul is constantly giving instructions to Timothy to make sure that he keeps his eyes open and is attentive to the false teaching that is creeping in. But before I get into that, I want to give you just a public service announcement. I almost forgot to do this, but it's important because for some of you, you're going to need to make another trip to Walmart before you go home today because more than likely you bought one of these gifts for your mom. I'm going to try to help you out before you get home. So first of all, these are the worst Mother's Day gifts ever. Uh, So moms, if you see... uh, if you see your husband or one of your kids wanting to go to Walmart and they never want to go to Walmart on Sunday, this could be the reason. First of all, deodorant. Do not buy your mom's deodorant for Mother's Day. And by the way, these, these gifts that you're not supposed to buy, they convey a message that you don't want to convey. Deodorant will be one of them. A fire extinguisher. Uh, I'm thinking some dad somewhere saying, well, we need a new fire extinguisher. Well, I can kind of cover two things with one option here. I can buy a fire extinguisher and cover that for Mother's Day. Uh, household cleaning supplies, just don't do that. Do not buy household cleaning supplies. A stick of French bread, that was an interesting one. Salad dressing, popcorn. And, and here's a good one that, that would probably not be a good gift, an ant farm. I'm thinking of some kids somewhere that thought, man, I'd love, I would love to have an ant farm. I'm sure mom would want one too. Here's another one you absolutely positively want to scratch off your list. Hair dye. (laughs) It's not going to be a pleasant afternoon if you've bought that, okay? If that's your gift. Uh, Screwdrivers. Toilet paper. Now, a year ago, toilet paper probably would have been a pretty good gift about a year ago, but not, not this year. Everything's changed, okay? A calculator, car parts. And one year, when I was, I think I was about 10 or 11, my dad bought my mom a push lawnmower. And even at 10 or 11, I knew that was a bad idea. I knew that, and I think they've still got that push lawnmower after all these years. It was a nice red one. Dad had even put it together for her and put it out on the carport thinking that she was going to be overjoyed. I can remember my mom's face to this day with that push mower. So if you're having to make a, a trip to Walmart, you can blame me for that. First Timothy chapter 6. Paul needs to deal with some issues. He's already brought up the idea of false teaching. And he's already said in this letter to Timothy that Timothy is to wage the good warfare. Now, now today he's going to say to Timothy, fight the good fight. So between waging warfare and fighting the good fight, in between those two statements is what Paul is telling Timothy about the false teachers that are creeping in. And what he's going to say today, and what he's going to teach in this text today, may catch you by surprise. Because there is a motivation behind these false teachers and why they're doing what they're doing. And what we're going to find out is that it's, it's power, it's, it's wealth, it's money. And, and you, when you read this text, you would think, well, Paul, how did you get from all of these issues about teaching false doctrine all the way down to greed and materialism? Well, we're going to see that today in the text and how he got there. 
So let's take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to pick it up there in the latter part of verse 2. It says, Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. Now let's pause right there for just a moment. So how can we recognize false teaching? How can we recognize when someone is teaching something other than what the Bible teaches? Well, first of all, you must be grounded in God's Word to know the difference. So, so if someone's teaching a false gospel, then you must understand what the true gospel is so that you can recognize the false gospel. I've heard it said that, and I don't know if this is true, and if you're in law enforcement, you can correct me, but I've heard it said that law enforcement, when they're looking for counterfeits, they don't study the counterfeit, they study the original. So if you're looking for counterfeit $100 bills, you got to know what a real $100 bill looks like. you got to know all the security stuff that they put into that $100 bill so that when you look at the false one, you know you know it's a fake. Well, so it is with Christianity and your walk of faith. You've got to know what is true doctrine so that you can pick up on what's false. And Timothy needs to understand how to know the difference. So Paul tells him. Paul says that it's a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, the teaching that accords with godliness. So Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, here's some ways you can know. First of all, if someone is teaching something that is a complete contradiction to what Jesus taught, then you know that it's false teaching. So if we're talking about the gospel, if someone is saying to you that the gospel is just be a good person, if someone is teaching you that the gospel is, well, you can be good enough, you can do enough good things, you can keep the law good enough, and that Jesus will accept you in the end when it's all said and done, that is a false gospel because we know that Jesus himself taught that there is no way to come into the kingdom without absolute perfection, and that perfection is found only in Jesus and his sacrifice and resurrection. If someone is teaching uh, that Jesus said, or was saying that Jesus said that, that in the end, all people are going to be saved. That's a very common one today. That, that when it's all said and done, and when the kingdom comes to full fruition, that you can believe in whatever God you want to, you can believe whatever you want to believe about anything in the world, but in the end, that you're going to be able to be welcomed into the kingdom by Jesus. That is false teaching. Because Jesus himself said that there's a wide path that leads to destruction, but there's a narrow path that leads to fulfillment and to true life. He says that not all are going to enter. As a matter of fact, Jesus said that, that the gospel is very, very exclusive. That it's only belief in what Jesus did on the cross and his resurrection is what brings a person out of darkness into light. Now, contrast that with what the world says. The world says any path is legitimate. That anything you want to believe is legitimate. That no matter what you believe, that all gods, all gods are the same. That one's called Allah, one's called Buddha, one's called Jesus. You put your faith in any of them and you're going to be okay. That is false teaching. And Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, make sure you pay attention. That if they're disagreeing with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and they're teaching things that, that are ungodly, if they're, they're teaching things that, and then they're saying that there are things that are right, that, that the Bible says are wrong, or the Bible says that this is right and they say they're wrong, that's false teaching. But notice, notice the teacher. Look at verse 4. He says this teacher, these false teachers, they're puffed up with conceit, and they understand nothing. We live in a world where we've got experts on every hand. I mean, we've got experts about experts. And, and, and you have no idea who, what their background is. You have no idea what kind of training they've had in any particular uh, background, and, and they're just put on TV or put on a podcast, and they're just said, here's the expert. Paul says these false teachers who are teaching that which is complete opposition to what Jesus 
taught and what the Bible says, those people know nothing. He says they're ignorant if they're contradicting Jesus' true teaching and the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're puffed up with conceit and they understand nothing. He says they have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. Now, Paul's already put his hand on this, and we don't know exactly what this was. What we know is, is that Timothy was teaching the gospel, and we know that there were others contradicting what Timothy was saying. So I would imagine that they're, they're arguing over what words mean. We have a problem with that today, do we not? I mean, our culture is telling us to use the English language in ways the English language was never meant to be used, all for the sake of, of appeasing one particular group of people. Can we refer to you as she or he or it or they or them? So, so the English language is having all this pressure put on it so that we, we navigate the English language and say things in just the right way to make sure that we don't offend anyone. And the English language can't even be communicated correctly with what's being thrown at it. An argument about words, quarrels about words, and notice what they produce. This quarrel and this fighting and this controversy and this, this false teaching, notice what it produces. It produces envy, dissension, slander, evil, suspicions, and constant friction. You could put all that together and say this, it causes division. And we live in a culture right now where everyone is dividing up into their own little tribes of what they believe about the world and about reality. Matter of fact, it's, being, it's getting harder and harder to have conversation with these people because they're coming from one tribe or another tribe or another belief system or another way to look at the world. And, and if you disagree with that, all that is left is anger, dissension, and hatred. Quarreling about words. I'll give you an example. So I saw this tweet. Uh, this one. I, I don't, I'm not on Twitter, but every now and then I'll see tweets on, on through podcasts and other things that I listen to and check into. And and this particular tweet was from the National Abortion and Reproductive Action League, or NARAL. And I want you to listen to this. When we talk about arguing about words, I want you to listen to this very closely. And I think this is interesting as we celebrate Mother's Day. Listen to these words. Quote, when we talk about birthing people, we're being inclusive. It's that simple. We use gender-neutral language when talking about pregnancy because it's not just cisgender women. Let me define. Cisgender women means women that are born biologically female. Okay, so that's the kind of conversations we're having, having now. So what they're saying, let me, let me reread this. We use gender-neutral language when talking about pregnancy because it's not just cisgender women that can get pregnant. Did you get that? They're saying right here that it is possible for someone other than a woman to get pregnant. Now, you know, I'm ignorant about a lot of things in the world, but one thing I'm pretty confident about, I've always been confident about. Matter of fact, I've had no issue with this whatsoever, that it's women that get pregnant. And, I, and I'm sorry that I'm having to have this conversation with you, but the fact of the matter is there's an argument about words right now. This raging all throughout our country about what is male and what is female. And these folks are saying, that, no, 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 it's not just biological women that can get pregnant. Listen to this. It's not just cisgender women that can get pregnant and give birth. Reproductive freedom is for everybody. Now, on the one hand, we can kind of chuckle about that. But on the other hand, this is devastating to our young people. We've got young people that are growing up in a culture that, that what they thought they knew to be true is now in flux. We're not really sure anymore. Well, yes, we are. We're absolutely sure. We're absolutely convinced that women 
and only women, from here on evermore, only women get pregnant. That's the way God designed it. And that's the way it's going to continue to be, regardless of how you feel about that. The fact of the matter is, this is just a war about words. And what is it causing? And we could talk about we could talk about racial tensions. We could talk about uh, financial issues. We could talk about all kinds of things. And when you look at it, it's how people are using the words, and what that is causing is dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. Is that not what you're seeing? It's what I see constantly. The same thing was happening. Not necessarily concerning gender. Maybe it was. Ephesus was a pretty messed up place. There was a sexual revolution going on there as well. We're not sure about what those quarrels were. What we know is the results of it was causing all kinds of division. But here's where I want to get to. Look at verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 5. Look at verse 5. He says, "...in constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of truth." Depraved in their mind, deprived of truth. Then he says this, "...imagining that godliness..." is a means of gain. Now, now get this picture. What was happening with these false teachers, they were teaching all kinds of things that were undermining the gospel, and undermining the truth of Scripture, undermining Timothy's leadership in the church. Now, there was an end goal to this. They were, they were undermining what godliness meant. So godliness, as defined by the Bible, is that, that God owns the world, He created the world, He gets to decide what is right and wrong. And when He tells us to not live a certain way or to give up certain things, He's trying to protect us from our own foolishness. But here what they're doing is they're redefining all of that. And the end goal was is that they could get great gain. Here's the point. They're trying to infiltrate the church. They're bringing in false teachings, all for the idea that if you'll live this way, if you'll do what we're telling you to do, then you'll be able to gain wealth. Now, of course, these false teachers know that it's been inside the human heart ever since, well, the fall, to want to gain more stuff. It's just part of what it means to live in a fallen world. More money in the bank account, and more money equates to more power. So when we start grabbing for more wealth and grabbing for material things, we're actually grabbing for power, and it's driven by pride, and it's driven by arrogance, and that's exactly what these false teachers are trying to bring into Timothy's church. Through division, through false teaching, and notice what Paul says. Verse 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. So what Paul does is he just flips on his head. He says, getting more stuff, getting more wealth, getting more power, that's not where you get gain from. Gain is actually the exact opposite. It's content. It's being content with what God has given you. And even Paul says being content with food and clothes. We could probably add to that shelter. That being content with those things. The godliness, following Jesus, walking with Him, and being content is where true gain is found. Verse 7, For we brought nothing into the world, we cannot take anything out. But if we have food and clothing with these, we shall be content. He says, But those who desire to be rich, which was what was happening in this church, through the divisions and the false teaching, you had a desire to be wealthy more than a desire to follow Jesus. Jesus spoke about that, as a matter of fact. Let's go back to Matthew 6. In Matthew 6, the, the greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus has something to say about this. Now, he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, and we'll pick it up at verse 24. In this sermon, this sermon was directed towards his disciples. Now, there's a crowd of people around listening to him teach, but the sermon itself was, was directed at the disciples and what it means to live as a kingdom-minded person. 
And right here in verse 24, he has something to say about this. Now remember, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, don't let them teach you anything other than what, than what Jesus taught. If they're, if they're contradicting Jesus, then Jesus must have the final say. His words are what count. Listen to his words, verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. Now, when the disciples heard that, I would imagine that they, they thought back to the history of Israel. Because if you go back into their history, what is it that Israel constantly struggled with? Idolatry. All over and over and over again. But not just idolatry. They, they, would, they would acquiesce to the gods of the pagan nations around them while at the same time trying to worship God. And God said, you've turned your back on me. You are now worshiping a God that is no God at all. So when Jesus says this to those disciples, no doubt they might have thought about how the nation of Israel had tried to have two masters. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. In other words, you're going to be devoted to one God and one God only. You better choose wisely which God that is. In the context of what Jesus is saying here, and with the context of Paul speaking to Timothy, you better not choose wealth as a God to follow. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, you cannot serve God and money. Now, look at your translation. Look at your text. Look at your Bible. I don't know what translation you're carrying, but you may have the word there, mammon, M-A-M-M-O-N. Or, or, and additionally, you may have the word mammon, and the word mammon may be capitalized. Now, why do you think some translations translated money? Other translations just put mammon in there. Well, what Jesus actually said was mammon. Now, why did he use that term? Because what is mammon? We don't even know what that is. Well, it refers back to an old false god in the old Syriac language, mammon. That's where he got the word from. Now, the disciples knew what it meant. What Jesus does here in this text, he says, you cannot serve God and mammon. He's saying you've got to choose between one God and one God only, either the God of this universe or this God called money who's no God at all. He actually personalizes money here. He takes money and gives it a personality. He says that money is so powerful that money has such a pull on your life that wealth and materialism can have such a pull on your life that it can be just like a God. And boy, oh boy, are many, many people bound to that God. Go back to 1 Timothy. So go back to what Timothy's saying, or what Paul's saying to Timothy here. He's saying to Timothy, Timothy, be content. Pay attention to what these false teachers are doing. Why is it your church is getting caught up in materialism? Why is it they're getting caught up in the wealth of Ephesus? It's because of the false teachers. Their end goal is for them to be caught up in another God, a God of wealth and money and power. Look at verse 10. He says, for the love of money, not money itself, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. There were people in Timothy's church that had wandered away. They had they walked back out into the world because of a desire for wealth. You see, they chose a God, but it wasn't the God of the Bible that they chose. So what are we to do with a situation where the world is arguing about words? What are we to do in a society where wealth is a God, that it might be the primary God? As a matter of fact, if you see the market, the stock markets go down, you can have terrorism going on, you can have a war overseas, but as soon as the stock market starts going down, where does everyone's attention go to in our country? Straight to the stock market. we got to fix it. That's because America has had for a long time a God called money. 
And that's a hard God to follow in worship because he will demand more and more and more. The God of money, this, this money, this thing, this wealth, this power, it has a gravitational pull to it, which means as you begin to amass things, it's never enough, is it? You know, the first million, it's not enough. You've got to earn another million. You know, the, 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 the brand new sports car is not enough. You've got to have another one. And then you've got to have a bigger garage to put all your toys in. It's never enough. It's because this God demands more and more and more and more. It pulls you in. That's why Jesus said you can't have two masters. You can't have two. And you've got to choose one. Where you're going to put your faith and where you're going to put your time. Paul, now in verse 11, is going to talk to Timothy about some things that he needs to do. Immediately right now. And anytime you hear Paul speaking like he is, we need to pay attention to it. And what he's going to do is he's going to use some imperatives. Now, an imperative in the Greek and in the English language, it's a command. It comes across as, do this, do it now, do it with haste, get about this, Timothy. Timothy, forget the other things, focus on this. If you want to protect yourself and protect your church. It's interesting to me that, that right after last week, we talked about the church taking care of the elders. And we also said that taking care of the elders meant a financial obligation. Isn't it interesting that now Paul is saying to Timothy, but Timothy, be careful with wealth. Be careful with wanting more and more and more. Be careful with money because it can turn into a God in your life and it can pull you towards it. Verse 11, he's going to give us four imperatives. Four imperatives that I want you to pay attention to. You might want to underline these. You might want to highlight them. Take note of them. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. See that word flee? That's the first imperative. He's, it's almost as though Paul is yelling through the text, Timothy, run and run hard and run fast and don't look back because this thing can destroy your ministry. This thing can undermine everything you're trying to accomplish. This desire for wealth and power flows out of a pride-filled place. Run like you've never ran. As a matter of fact, this word flee is used several times in the New Testament. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, he says to that church, flee from sexual immorality. In 1 Corinthians 10, he says, flee from idolatry. In 2 Timothy, we'll look at in a few weeks, 2 Timothy 2.22, he says, flee from youthful passions. James even says, he kind of flips it around in James 4.7, he says that if you'll resist the devil, guess what the devil will do? He'll flee. But this word flee is interesting in the Greek because what it does is it paints a picture of someone who just got out of jail. Maybe you've broke out of prison. Right? You were, you were held in prison and, and you were kind of held behind bars with no possibility of ever going free. And one day you set it in your mind that you're going to break out of prison. Well, the very moment you break free, how fast are you going to run? You're going to run fast because you just got a taste of freedom. And you're going to run with everything you are. You're going to run like a fugitive who just got out of jail. That's the connotation of the word flee. Paul says to Timothy, flee these things. What things? These quarrels about words. This, this false doctrine. Deal with this, but don't you get caught up in it. Deal with the greed, Timothy. Deal with the materialism that is all through Ephesus. Timothy, you've got to flee from this like you've never ran in your life. You've got to run. Get away from it. It will destroy you. And there are some things, moms and dads, that you need to run from like you're running like a fugitive. There are things coming into your household. There are things coming into your, your kids' devices. 
that you absolutely got to teach your kids to flee from those things. First of all, you've got to engage. You've got to see what's coming on. And then you've got to teach your kids there are things in this life that you must absolutely run from. You can't even, dis- you can't even think about it. You've got to run. When you break out of prison, you don't think about, wow, this turned out great. No, what do you do? You run with everything that's in you. That's what Paul is saying to Timothy here. He says, flee from these things. The second thing he's going to say is pursue. Notice this. He says, flee from these things. Flee from greed. Flee from materialism. Now we're going to pursue righteousness. Now I've told you before that when you turn towards Christ, so let's, let's talk to those of you who are lost. You've never put your faith in Jesus. You see, you're not just turning away from a broken life. That's certainly part of it. You're not just turning away from from the sinful habits of your old life. You're you're turning towards Jesus. So you're turning away from something and towards something. The Christian life is always about walking away from some things and walking towards some other things. Paul says here to Timothy, Timothy, run from materialism, run from wealth, but you're also going to run towards righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. So you're not just walking away from something, you're running towards something. And Paul does a word play here. The word for pursue, get this. If, if flee is, is running like a fugitive, pursuing is running like a law officer trying to catch a fugitive. So it's a beautiful thing in the Greek language. He, he flips it on a word play here. On the one hand, you flee, run like you're a fugitive. But if you're pursuing godliness and righteousness, and steadfastness and love, guess what you're going to do? You're going to run like those, run towards those like you're running after a fugitive. So if you're a police officer and someone's got out of your, out of your grip, right? Someone jerked away from you, he's running away. How fast are you going to run to get them back? You're going to run it with everything you've got. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, run away from materialism like a fugitive, but run towards righteousness, which means run towards what is right and wrong. The God, the creator of this universe, has decided once and for all that there are things that are right and things that are wrong. Run towards those things. He says to pursue godliness. In other words, live for Him, honor Him, love Him, respect Him, and godliness. Faith, faith is belief that is acted upon. He said run towards that. Run towards the truth of God's Word, but be willing to act on that truth. He says to run towards love, to run towards steadfastness and gentleness. Gentleness is not something we're seeing in our culture much anymore, is it? I was at the bank the other day, and I was sitting in the drive-thru, and I was over in the aisle where you put the little thing in the tube, right? And over on the other side, next to the actual window, is a family. And I rolled my window down, and I could hear the anger and the cursing from the other car towards the teller. And I looked at the teller, and she's already in tears. Well, of course, being a pastor, I'm going to eavesdrop because, you know, I'm, I have an opportunity to minister. I'm joking. You couldn't help but hear it. I mean, they're yelling at this poor lady who's, who's trying to uh, help them, but there was no way she could. Here's what they were demanding. Their stimulus check had not showed up in their account yet, and they were demanding that the teller write them a check. From where? From what? From whose account? What, what am I supposed to do? And they are berating this young lady. I felt so bad for her. I got a little bit upset, but I thought, you know, this could go really wrong if I get involved in this. And the bank manager was involved, but, but there was no gentleness, no kindness at all. You know why that is? If you go back up to what Timothy's already been taught by Paul, 
an unhealthy craving for controversy, quarrels about words, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. You see, you're going to run towards one or the other. It depends on who you're listening to. If you're listening to those who are teaching false teachings, false, there are all kinds of people out there now saying all kinds of things about Jesus, about my Lord, about my Savior, about my King, that is absolutely not only ungodly, but untrue. And when you begin to listen to that garbage, guess what the results are? Envy, slander, friction, suspicions, hatred. Paul says, Timothy, you're going to run one of two directions. You need to flee from these things of wealth and power, and you need to run towards righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and yes, gentleness, kindness. Listen, folks, some of the best work of the gospel you're going to do in this community right now is simply to be kind to people. If you're a follower of Jesus, be kind to people. That, that's going to open up all kinds of opportunities to share the gospel, just simply being kind. You know why it's going to do that? Because there's so little of it right now. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you're running towards gentleness and love and kindness. You're pursuing these things. And then Timothy gets this next imperative. Verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Now, when you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, you see there he says, wage good warfare. Wait a minute, that seems like pretty strong words. We just said, be gentle, be loving, be faithful, right? Well, how does, how does fighting a fight and waging war fit into this? Well, guess what? If you're following Jesus, you are already in spiritual warfare. You might not recognize it, but you are. Your home's under attack. Parents, moms, oh, goodness, moms, you do such a great job. They're keeping an eye on your kids. You keep, you're keeping an eye on what they're watching, what they're listening to, and you're engaging. And kids, I know you don't like that, but listen, your mom is not called to be your best friend. Your mom is not called to be your best friend. Your mom is called to say the hard things when she needs to say the hard things. And I'm, I'm pretty certain that most of the moms in this place are not so much concerned about how you feel as about doing the right thing. Thank you, moms, for doing that. Okay? What he's saying here is, is we're fighting a battle. There's spiritual warfare going on. And you need to realize that. You need to recognize that. And your family, as a Christian family, your household is in the target. And you have got to stay engaged in the fight. He says, fight the good fight of faith. The good fight of faith. Faith in a God who's made some promises who's going to fulfill every one of them. Faith and trust in a God who says, I've got you. And yeah, you're going to go through some hard stuff. This whole last year has been some hard stuff, but I've got you. You're in my hands and nothing should pluck you out. You love your kids, God loves them even more. You want to take care and protect your kids? God wants to do that anymore. But I can tell you this, if you don't recognize that we're in spiritual warfare, you're already doing your family a disservice. Fight the good fight. And then finally, so we have these four imperatives. We have flee, pursue, fight, and then this last one, take hold. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. Now, it would be really easy at this point for somebody to look at that verse and go, ah, okay, so Timothy is supposed to work for salvation. It sounds like Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, reach and grab and hold on to salvation. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is, Timothy, live in the, in the reality that you're born again. Live out your faith as though you are in the, palm of, in the palm of God's hand and nothing shall pluck you out. Take hold and live out your salvation with trust and faith, knowing that you are okay. Here, here's the reality of what he's saying. He's saying, fight the good fight. 
but guess, guess what? As you fight the battle, the victory's already been won. So imagine this, you're, you're in a boxing ring, you're going to a fighter, you're going you're gonna to be an MMA fighter, you're going to get in the ring and you're fighting. And, and in our world, we don't know who the winner is yet. But not in this world, not in what Paul's teaching Timothy. He's saying to Timothy, take hold of your salvation. Hey, Timothy, realize your name is already on the victor's trophy. It's already been settled. Your name is already on the winner's board. Not because of what Timothy's done, but because of what Jesus did on his behalf. You're already, you've already won. You've already got the victory. Timothy, live your life as though you're already victorious. How many of you are living in such a way that you're defeated? Listen, I didn't like COVID-19 any more than anybody else did. We were still ongoing with this. It's still stuff we got to deal with. And yes, there were times in the middle of it, I'm like, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what to do with the church. I don't know what to do in leading and moving forward with what God's called me. But one thing I always came back to is, God, you have got this. You've got me. And if somehow I don't get to live to see my 60th birthday or my 55th birthday, so be it. I'm secure in the hands of God. Can you say that? Is that where you were living today? Are you living in a place with such confidence in God that whether it be COVID or some other mess we got to deal with, that your heart and your soul is well. It's good. That's where I'm trying to live my life. That's where Paul's trying to tell Timothy, Timothy, live with that kind of confidence every day, and you can face whatever you've got to face. But you've got to flee. You've got to flee from the wealth. You've got to flee from these other gods, and you've got to pursue righteousness, and you've got to fight the good fight, and you've got to take hold of the reality of the change that I've made in your life. And those were the imperatives, the action words for Timothy, and they're the action words for you. Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness and your goodness and your grace. And you've been far better to us than we've ever deserved. Father, thank you for the moms in this place that have really worked hard this past year to take care of their family, to protect their kids, not just from the culture, but from this, this virus. They've done everything they can. For some of them, they had to go through the virus. For some of them, they were made sick. And even now, Father, we have a family connected to our church that is going through a really, really hard time. A young mother who's struggling. And so, Father, we lift her up this morning to you. Father, you've already worked miracles there, and we thank you for it. We pray that you would continue to do that. Father, we pray for our moms, that you continue to give them the strength and the courage to do what they need to do in their homes with their kids. But, Father, help us to flee to pursue you with everything that we are, to run away from any other God that presents itself. Father, that we would fight the good fight of faith and take hold and live by the reality of the difference that you've made in our life. Father, as we worship together this morning, may you be exalted in this place. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist. 